Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How about you? Doing great. And also joining us on tonight's podcast is Kelly Dobso. Kelly, how's it going? Hey, good. I'm glad to be back. So, Kelly, you are back for just a shit show of a podcast. I'm just going to go ahead and start us on that that <laughs> note. We are here today to talk about the aftermath of the Iowa caucuses. So we are recording on Tuesday evening. And on Monday evening, uh, Democrats in Iowa gathered across the state in school gymnasiums and libraries and community centers and took part in one of the most interesting and most bizarre political traditions that I have ever seen. They caucused to determine who should get the delegates from the state of Iowa for the Democratic nomination for president. And the start of it was basically the high point of the evening. It went downhill from there. Um, (laughs) As we are recording on Tuesday evening, results for that election have not been fully released. Uh, At this point, about 60% of the results that Iowa has have been released. Those results show good totals for Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, and we're going to dive into those here shortly. But this night really was defined by technical problems that the caucus experienced. And so, Megan, could you just start off by setting the table for us of kind of what went wrong from a technical perspective and why Iowa was relying on this technical solution uh, in one of their oldest political traditions? Absolutely. So what went wrong is Iowa tried to apply new technology to an election. And as I've said in previous podcasts, when talking about election technology, there's a lot that could potentially go wrong if that new technology is not implemented appropriately. So in this particular case, what uh, Shadow Inc., which is the company that actually created the application, what they said is that, quote, As the Iowa Democratic Party has confirmed, the underlying data and collection process via Shadow's mobile caucus app was sound and accurate, but our process to transmit that caucus results data generated via the app to the IDP was not, end quote, which is a little bit wordy and convoluted, basically to say that the data never got where it was supposed to go so it could be tabulated. Now, there have been a few different statements as to what happened. The main statement is from the Iowa Democratic Party that stated that the app was recording data accurately, but it it was reporting out only partial data because of a coding issue in the reporting system. And that was a quote from Iowa Democratic Party Chair Troy Price, um, as quoted by NPR. So a coding issue in the reporting system is definitely an option that could have occurred when Shadow first sent out their tweet about the data not arriving appropriately. What it read to me was a data transmission issue um, or a bandwidth issue, which could be related to the cloud service provider, if uh, assuming this this app was cloud hosted or if it was hosted, you know, somewhere like owned by the Iowa Democratic Party, just could maybe didn't have enough hardware behind it. There are a couple of different options options. But to me, it really seemed more like a a data transmission thing than a coding thing. However, I'm not part of Shadow Inc. So I can't say for sure. One of the biggest things that I have talked about previously on podcasts is that if appropriate training 
is not given for new election technology and and if the new election technology is not appropriately tested or designed, then you're going to have problems no matter how great the new technology is. And that's exactly what happened here. Um, it, it seems, and it's been confirmed by other sources, that this application just was not appropriately stress tested. It was not tested to have that many people using it at once. Because you hear reports throughout Iowa of some people being able to use it and have and using it flawlessly, and then others never even being able to get the app downloaded, much less actually use it to transmit caucus-related data. Well, and this also seems to have been complicated by a couple of other decisions that were made as a part of this process. The first decision that I noticed in the reporting was that the Iowa Democratic Party decided that use of this app was optional. There were certain precincts that were getting the results down on paper and then making a phone call to report those results to the party who was centrally collecting them to aggregate all the results. But because the party had rolled out this app, it appeared that they had not properly staffed a call center, meaning that there were long waits for people on the phone to be able to report their results. And that seemed to slow the process down. On top of that, there were new rules in the Iowa caucus this year that required the reporting of sort of three separate numbers. And so it's important here to sort of take a step back and understand what the Iowa caucuses actually are. Um, They are this process where people gather in a room, they stand in corners of the room to signify the candidates that they support. When doing that, every candidate who is a participant in the caucus has to reach 15% of the vote in the room to be viable. And if a candidate is not viable, then the supporters of that candidate can switch their, their support to a different candidate. So there's two numbers there. There's the vote on the first alignment, and then there's a second alignment vote once candidates who are not viable are basically removed from the process. And then that is translated into a third number uh, which is the the number of delegates that are ultimately awarded um, on the delegate system that feeds into the national convention. So you have this issue of the phone reporting being the backup option that doesn't appear to be properly staffed, and then new counting methods which required additional data reporting than was used in the past. So you were trying to roll out a lot of different things at once here. What What was y'all's general reaction to you know, going to bed on Monday night, waking up on Tuesday morning, and there just being like nothing, like almost radio silence in terms of when we were actually going to find out who won this race. I went to bed pretty early last night. I woke up pretty early. I was genuinely frustrated. I thought that this could have been prevented with whether properly testing the technology or resorting back to writing everything down on paper or better collection of information. A bunch of different things um and it made me worried for the future and i believe there was some reporting that said that this app was doing the caucuses for nevada maybe um so just genuinely concerned for how this is going to impact people's perception on elections and if they're fair or not because that's been a pretty common concern um, especially here within georgia of election security so it'll be interesting to see how not only when we get the full results, but how people are going to feel about them um, and feel about election security within the caucuses, but then also within the primaries and um, future elections as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that was a lot of the discussion that I observed today, too. Um, It was not the most responsible discussion in a lot of instances. There were supporters of certain candidates who felt the delay in reporting the results was actually signified that the fix was in for some candidate over another candidate. Um, Just a lot of irresponsible treatment of the situation. And then sort of the lack of transparent, quick information that was provided by the Iowa Democratic Party opened this up to misinterpretation. Um, A Georgia tie-in was Doug Collins, who actually tweeted out that uh, he said that the Des Moines Register poll and Iowa caucus itself hide their results under a, quote, quality control effort, which was how the... uh, the tabulation of the results was described on caucus night. And he said either the fix is in or this group of lefty incompetents should not be handed the nuclear codes. Um, two, two issues with that. Number one, the Iowa Democratic Party is not running for president. I'm sure Doug understands that. But, but also it, it created this vacuum where there wasn't information about what was going on. And so there was an opportunity for people who wanted to erode confidence in elections to say that the fix was in, that the party was acting out against candidates that that they didn't like. Bernie Sanders always seems to be the candidate who is the target of the Democratic Party, according to people who would spread misinformation on these subjects. So that, to me, too, was something that was troubling about this, because they're Again, I mean, we come back to this over and over again when there are controversies around voting. There is a responsible policy-based conversation that needs to be had. There is a conversation about the caucus process that needs to be had. And when that is not done in a responsible manner or when people who clearly have a political agenda throw misinformation into the mix, it makes it impossible to have this conversation. And so that, to me maybe is even the bigger mistake by the Iowa Democratic Party. Yes, they used an app that they didn't stress test that wasn't ready to be deployed. And yes, we have results later than we should. But the biggest issue, I think, is the fact that the lack of transparency and timeliness opened an opportunity for people to spread misinformation about what was going on. That's not to say that we have zero results. So on Tuesday evening is where we're recording the Iowa Democratic Party has released results for 62% of precincts in the state. They did this today at about five o'clock Eastern. They they dumped 62% of the data all at once and then left people completely in the dark about when additional data would be coming in. By the time you're listening to this podcast, the full Precinct results may have been reported, um, so that certainly could change the story. I mean, we hope. I'm also hoping to get this podcast out quickly, uh, but we hope that we will know the results soon. Um, That certainly could change the story, but I think it's worth discussing the results as we have them now, uh, because I think it does tell an interesting story, at least temporarily. Um, So we certainly reserve judgment for if the numbers really do change significantly. But as we have the results with 62% of precincts reporting, we have Pete Buttigieg leading uh, in the delegate count. Uh, he got he has about 27% of the delegates. Bernie Sanders is very close behind him. He has about 25% of the delegates. Elizabeth Warren at 18 in third place. Joe Biden at 15 and a half in fourth place. Amy Klobuchar at 12 in fifth place, and then all of the others, which basically include Steyer and Yang, 
Uh, they were not viable at a lot of caucus locations. So combined, they only got one and a half percent of the delegates, the, the remaining share. What is your reaction, Megan, to these results as we have them now? Um, I am actually surprised at the fact that Biden is not absolutely up at the tippy top. Um, you know, I've been saying for months that I feel like, I mean, he is he is up there, don't get me wrong. But, you know, Sanders is ahead of him. Buttigieg is ahead of him. And, you know, Kyle just read the list. Um, so that's actually a pleasant surprise for me just because I've been worried for months that like we're as a party just going to all have to get behind Biden. And this gives me some hope that maybe that has shifted um, because clearly I'm not a huge fan of Biden, but I plan to vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is. Um, and it just gives me some hope that it's maybe not going to be Biden. Kelly, what was your reaction? I think the thing that we can safely say you know, it's hard to say who won. Buttigieg and Sanders seem very close at the top, and additional data could sort of flip the order there at the top. Joe Biden, unless a lot of the remaining votes are for him, really seems to have underperformed where he was in the polls, really seems to have a disappointing finish for his campaign in terms of main- in terms of maintaining his status as the nominal frontrunner while you go through the first two states and get to his stronghold of South Carolina, what was your reaction to Biden being so far behind? So I'm somewhat surprised, somewhat not surprised. Um, so his uh, campaign's strategy is to pick up a lot of delegates within South Carolina because he kind of has a monopoly there. So I was expecting him to do a little bit better in Iowa than he actually did. Um, however, I think it's interesting to note, though, how these delegates have broken up. Um, so Biden, if you look at the map and what we have now, which of course is, is subject to change, um, but he's only leading in six counties and those are all rural counties, which I think is interesting and something that I didn't expect him. I, I expected him to lead in a couple of more counties than he actually did. However, what really surprised me was that Pete Buttigieg has a massive monopoly on suburban counties. So he really locked down all of the counties that were surrounding um, these urban cities. The urban cities went to Bernie Sanders. What I found the most surprising out of all of it, though, is that Warren did not lead in any county, meaning that, um, well, actually, she tied with one. She tied with Pete in Iowa County. But I thought it was very interesting that she didn't, she wasn't leading in any county, but Klobuchar did, all the other candidates did um, out of the top five. But she did not. And of course, this is still subject to change since we only have 62% of um, the data. But overall, I think this was a major win for Pete Buttigieg. I'm interested to see how this may or may not impact his campaign and the polls out of New Hampshire. Um, I don't think he'll do well in South Carolina regardless of what happens. But it'll be interesting to see if this shifts at all for New Hampshire in his favor. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing to keep in mind about... Iowa is that in the grand scheme of things, Iowa is a relatively small state. There really aren't tons of delegates on the table when you compare it to other states and you compare it to the massive hall of delegates that's going to come on Super Tuesday across more than a dozen states. So part of what candidates who do well in Iowa want to do is they want to shape the narrative about how strong their candidacy is, and in what way their candidacy is strong, and build this sense of momentum 
to convince people who may be on the fence, maybe don't feel strongly about the candidate they support, to join the bandwagon, join the candidate who is excelling in this race as this process moves forward. Regardless of whether Pete Buttigieg finishes first or second, to me, he seems like a big winner for his ability to do that. So the narrative that Pete Buttigieg started to drive the night of the caucuses was that he had strategically targeted rural suburb, rural and suburban counties in Iowa, primarily counties that are pivot counties, voted for Obama in 2008 or 2012 and voted for Trump in 2016. Because of the way delegate allocation works in the Iowa caucuses, he demonstrated two things by doing this. Number one, he demonstrated that he was approaching this strategically with an aim of maximizing the amount of delegates that he could get per vote he received. And number two, he was showing that he could compete in areas that had voted for Democrats previously and then had transitioned to Donald Trump, basically going right at the Biden argument that Biden is the most electable because he is able to flip blue-collar white voters who supported Trump in 2016, bring them back home to the Democrats in 2020. Pete Buttigieg's strategy seemed aimed at sending that message. And if he did so, and in the process won the Iowa caucuses or basically tied for first with Bernie Sanders, that to me would be a huge accomplishment given where he stood entering this election. But I still feel like, you know, Pete Buttigieg appears to be a winner in these early results. I still feel like if you're Bernie Sanders, you got to feel really good about where you're at. You're either going to win the Iowa caucuses or come in a very close second. Um, and then your polling looks strong in New Hampshire, while everything else appears muddled in the in the biggest rival that you were projected to have in the early polls, Joe Biden, severely underperformed. Um, so I definitely feel like Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders, at least according to these early results, should feel really good about where they landed in the in Iowa. So beyond those top two, I think if you're Elizabeth Warren, I think you feel fine. Like you obviously would have wanted to win or uh, be in that top two, um, or at least have your your share of delegates be really really close with the top competitors, but. You're, you didn't underperform in a way where, you know, we've had pretty negative things to say about Biden's performance. I don't think Elizabeth Warren falls into that category. Um, but you just, you know, if you're her, you just have to start making that ground up in other states. Um, so I would expect probably some heavy investment from her in New Hampshire to try to keep Bernie Sanders from sort of pulling away with the progressive wing pulling away in that lane and having this wind up be a Buttigieg Sanders one-on-one matchup down the road. My only real comment on uh, Warren or anyone that is not in the top two is that I was really disappointed. You know, my inner feminist was definitely coming out a little bit last night. And as of course today, as the results were actually coming in um, and I'll be interested to see how things actually play out. But I'm a little sad that Warren is not in the top two, along with Klobuchar. My inner voice that's screaming girl power this entire election, especially after how I feel like both of them did really well in the last debate, um, is really sad that Warren and Klobuchar are not one of the top two. Is it surprising? Not necessarily, but it still does make me sad. 
So if you watch the results on TV, well, you didn't watch the results come in, but if you were waiting for them like I was on cable, on cable news on Monday night, you would have observed what really looks like a frankly kind of bizarre democratic process. Um, you saw people lining up in gyms across Iowa, going through this process of lining up in their corner for their candidate and then shuffling around. Um, the thing that I observed in cable news coverage of the caucuses was this really strange uh, process where once candidates did not reach viability, it sort of became open negotiations for people to try to persuade supporters of non-viable candidates to come over into their camps. And these negotiations were so complex at one point that I saw backers of Elizabeth Warren engaging with these negotiations with backers of Andrew Yang at this particular precinct where Yang was not viable. And they actually struck some kind of a deal where they weren't actually persuading individual people to come over to their camp. They actually arranged what almost seemed like almost a three-team trade where they allocated supporters to each candidate to have all three results in being viable and sort of made this handshake deal between the leaders of the two precinct captains for each candidate. And this was all captured on TV. And then the the host comes over and starts asking him about these negotiations. I think this was on MSNBC. The host comes over and, and says, you know, tell us a little bit about what was going on there. And they describe this deal that was struck. And, and the guy says, you know, that's just that, you know, we're doing democracy right now. This is what democracy looks like. And I was like, no, this is not what democracy looks like. You don't make like a three-team deal uh, to try to persuade people to come and support your candidate. I don't. What What is y'all's takeaway from just that observation and in this process generally of not having every individual person go to the ballot and make their pick, but having this almost like negotiation format that is limited to candidates who are only uh, viable as a part of this process? My first reaction is that it's just an entire mess. And I think a lot of people now that, especially since there's a ton of different candidates and there's not just two or three candidates as there has been in the past, people are starting to see the direct flaws in the system of caucusing. And it it's just not the best way to get votes. And I... There's a bunch of different arguments of how we should do this. I'm not going to take a particular stance on alternatives, but this just turned out to be a complete shit show, and there's no other better way to say that. It's just an entire mess. Everybody woke up the next morning confused, absolutely have no idea what's going on. So yeah, I, I just think that there needs to be a better way. I think there's better alternatives out there for sure that we will definitely see that debate come up within this week and in the future and hopefully there'll be a next the next go around this will be completely different and this will be the last time we have to deal with whatever that was that we called democracy so (laughs) yeah i'm with you kelly i don't i agree that this was a shit show and that that was not hashtag what democracy looks like one of the things that I do like about caucusing, though, is the fact that all of a sudden, because of the way it's done, when done appropriately and not in that three handshake trade deal situation, is that your your second choice all of a sudden 
matters. Your second choice all of a sudden holds weight if your first choice turns out not to be viable. So, you know, there was that one precinct that was on TV talking about how like everyone was surprised that Yang was all of a sudden viable. But at the precincts where candidates like Yang weren't viable, they could then say, okay, well, my candidate's not viable. So who's my second choice? And, you know, then they could walk across the room and join another group. Or they could speak with someone who is knowledgeable about the candidate and say, okay, well, I don't really have a second choice. What is so similar? Like, what are the similarities between your candidate and the candidate that was my first choice? What are the differences? And let me make an educated decision. You know, like those are the, that's one of the really great benefits of caucuses that I feel like we don't get to see in primaries or um, even in general elections. And it reminds me a little bit of rank voting. Yeah, I mean, that certainly raises, Megan, that there are other ways to sort of capture second level preferences without having to do it in this weird sort of negotiating format. Um, There is an increasing interest in this process of voting called ranked choice voting. So the way that this works is when you cast a ballot, you don't cast a ballot for a single candidate. You rank all of the candidates in order of preference that you have for them. Um, and then if the if the rules of the election require the winning candidate to get a majority of the votes, then you do successive rounds of counting until somebody has a majority. And if you're, you know, so round by round, the candidate with the fewest amount of votes is eliminated from competition and people's second or third choice, their vote goes to the, the candidate that was listed second or third on their preference sheet until somebody ends up with a majority. Um, it's kind of a complicated process, but the the benefit here is that this all happens automatically because you've made all of your choices in advance, and then the rounds of voting that happen um, can allow uh, basically automatic tabulation until you find the candidate that has a majority of the vote. And then that also has the benefit for you as the voter of allowing your second or third or fourth choice, allowing your vote to go to that person so that your vote just simply isn't wasted if your candidate isn't viable. So ranked choice voting is actually something that I find really interesting, and it's had success in other places. Um, I know Maine recently adopted this, and there's some other cities, I believe San Francisco, but places within Europe also have a similar way of voting. But for the United States, and for example, um, I think this is best seen within our current um, race right now where we have a bunch of different candidates rather than just two or three, is that people can actually rank and vote for whoever they want. Because of this ranking system, say maybe you support Andrew Yang, but realistically maybe you think, well, I really like Andrew Yang, but the rest of the country might not. And my second choice is Amy Klobuchar, for example, or something. Your vote you can vote for Andrew Yang, but your vote isn't quote unquote wasted. In my opinion, that is what democracy is. Your vote is actually going to something and you have multiple choices. So yeah, this is this is the way that I think it should be structured. It gives smaller candidates um, with, I guess, a little bit of a smaller following the ability to be voted and it gives them a better chance rather than um, all the votes just going to Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren because they are the top four and because they are quote unquote the most electable because they have the largest amount of support. So in all in all, I think it's a great thing to look into. And 
I really look forward to there being more discussion based off of this ranked voting system as well. Quick question. Does rank voting tend to include no votes, like voting against a candidate? Because I feel like I've seen that, but I don't actually remember when or where. Maybe I've just seen it as an idea. And is that part of rank choice? You can skip. You don't have to rank them, I don't think. You can just leave them blank. Gotcha. But can you ever vote against a candidate? I think leaving it blank would effectively vote against them. I mean, so if you had four candidates and you only ranked the top two, but it turns out your top two weren't viable, you just wouldn't contribute a vote to the other two that are left in that process. Gotcha. I just feel like I've seen somewhere where you can say like, you can like essentially no vote a candidate. And I don't know how it works really. Like if it's like the SAT where you lose a quarter of a point or if it just, it it essentially is the same thing as not voting. You know, I, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's more of like, it doesn't count against you, but if somebody does vote for you, it goes to you. If somebody doesn't go to you or vote to you, it doesn't necessarily take away anything. Um, it just acts as if somebody like just didn't vote. Yeah, I would think, you know, if you think about what it would mean to like, for instance, take a quarter point away, that would sort of result in you with your no vote, reducing the value of somebody else's vote by taking a point away from them that somebody else or taking a, a portion of a point away from them that somebody else had given to them. Um, but gotcha. I, you know, yeah, but that, I think that, that's not uh, how we, that's not how we vote. I get it. Um, but I think that that, that raises, you know, something interesting about ranked choice voting is there are probably multiple ways to do it. Um, and this is something that exists basically as a pilot program in some places right now, you know, city elections tend to have more expansive voting rules. Some cities allow people as young as 16 to vote. Some cities allow undocumented residents to vote. Uh, because if they're undocumented, they're living in that community. Um, they're probably paying the taxes, using some of the city services, using infrastructure like roads or transit. You know, this is another one of those where if you're testing out different ways to vote to try to expand the franchise and make it more meaningful to people, um, trying out these different methods and seeing how they work, seeing if they increase engagement, um, is certainly an opportunity for for people who would like to see uh, the right to vote expanded and, and made easier to utilize. Um, another criticism of the Iowa caucuses that has made its way around Democratic circles is the fact that Iowa is a very white state and a state that is certainly not representative of the Democratic electorate at large um, and is really not representative of just the general public when compared to other states or or national averages uh, based on demographics. Obviously, if Iowa's not going to come first, that raises the question of what state should come first. And Georgia seems to be on the top of a lot of people's lists in terms of a state that is more demographically representative and is more pivotal in the process. Um, What do y'all think about the primary calendar switching and allowing Georgia to go first or allowing other states that may be more representative to take the first vote? So I think there's definitely some concerns with Iowa being the first state within the caucus system. And then second is New Hampshire, with which they're both predominantly white states. However, the only time or the next states that you get a little bit of more diversity 
that are more inclusive of the party's um, demographics is Nevada and South Carolina. I think there's definitely some issues with predominantly white states being first and then only getting some input from people of color. So specifically like South Carolina, a large amount of electorate is African-American voters. I think that's very problematic. And it's, it's definitely a big debate topic point right now. And so with Iowa as well, a big part of Iowa that we've seen before in history is the momentum you get after winning or in this case, winning parts of Iowa within the, the delegates. So it, just the fact that you could shift the entire race by gaining a lot of momentum from Iowa and shifting that rather than you maybe not performing as well in South Carolina beforehand is a major concern. I definitely think that Georgia should be in consideration for being one of the first states to go in the caucusing, maybe the next 2024, 2028 um, election cycle, just because Georgia is very diverse um, we have a big African-American electorate, but we also have a lot of Latinos and Asian um, Americans as well. Um, and we're also becoming a flip or yeah, flippable state. So I think it's important to have a flippable state go first, just because that is extremely representative of what the United States is as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that there is room for more diverse states at the at the beginning of the primary calendar. I do, though, think that there is something... A, that's honestly kind of romantic, but also useful about campaigning in smaller, more rural, lower population places Um, to have to, you know, if you're somebody who has the confidence in yourself to put yourself forward to be the president of the United States, and then to begin your campaign by going into a room full of 15 or 20 people who all know each other, but who have never met you, and to try to convince them why you should be president and to try to learn about their concerns, to hear about the things that are happening in their community. Um, I think that that is an important part of the process in terms of growing candidates and allowing them to get firsthand experience with issues that matter in smaller places in our country. And my only concern with Georgia, you know, and you probably could do this in a way that that structures the rules to sort of disincentivize this. But my only concern with Georgia is that you fly in to Atlanta, do a couple of events with 2000 people in a gym in Metro Atlanta, and then you leave and you go somewhere else and don't really leave the Metro Atlanta area and get to smaller places in our state. And I think that's primarily driven by the geography of our state that so many people in our state live in the Metro Atlanta area it's easy to fly into ATL and, you know, zoom over to events, you know, within 30 or 45 minutes from the airport and then leave and go somewhere else. Um, the one thing, though, that I think would be raised by making Atlanta first is forcing future presidents to sit in traffic, trying to navigate their way across Metro Atlanta and rush hour and having to do that for months, months on end, every single cycle. If Georgia ends up being the first state, you know, candidates have spent a lot of time in Iowa leading up to their caucuses. Um, if we force candidates to do that, I think we'll get an infrastructure bill that's going to give us some transit and, and take care of our traffic in no time. Right. Welcome to Atlanta where the players play and we cross by lanes of traffic every day. That's <laughs> 
Uh, I can't take credit for that. One of my friends made that up. As we were on the 85, 75 clusterfuck headed toward the Grady Curve. I mean, you know how many hours of Beto O'Rourke live streaming from his van that we would have gotten of him just like sitting on the connector, crawling along (laughs) every single day? It would have been amazing. It would have been. Um, what, any other thoughts here before we take a preview of New Hampshire about how else you would adjust the, the primary schedule or anything else about the way primaries are conducted early on? It's just interesting that we're still sticking to this, this form of, you know, Iowa caucusing first and New Hampshire having the first primary, just because these states decided that they were going to go first. Uh, You know, the whole reason New Hampshire has the first primary is because it's literally state law. Like they just they basically wrote it in that they would have the first primary. And they're a little salty about Iowa having a caucus, but they don't really count it because it's a caucus, not a primary. And there's also like shots fired. New Hampshire saying Iowa doesn't pick presidents, they pick corn or something to that effect. Um, and there's a really interesting article from uh, the University of New Hampshire, Carsey School of Public Policy, that just kind of goes into um, why New Hampshire has the first primary. And it's pretty recent. It talks about uh, Julian Castro raising the issues of diversity that we've already discussed. But at the very end of the article, before the uh, citations, the New Hampshire Secretary of State, William Gardner, is quoted as saying, quote, an ounce of history is worth a pound of logic, end quote. Just kind of referring to how the nomination process should change or could change, but it's not just because that's tradition. Well, and on top of that, Iowa's status as the first caucus in the nation really wasn't actually all that meaningful when Iowa shifted to being first. Um, Part of it was just an issue of the calendar in terms of working delegates through the process from precincts at the local level through the counties through the state, getting delegates reported to the national convention. And it was actually Jimmy Carter, who basically put Iowa on the map when nobody else was really paying attention to it in 1976. Uh, Nobody thought that that contest was really all that important. Um, And Jimmy Carter, long shot candidate for president, uh, who was even mocked by the Atlanta paper when he decided to run for president, um, you know, landed in Iowa, basically lived there for a while leading up to the caucus um, and was so unknown that one of his first TV gigs that he was able to get, it wasn't on any kind of political show or any kind of news show. It was on a cooking show, but he took it because it was all he could get. And he went onto this cooking show and described the ways in which he likes to fry fish. And then he was like, oh, and by the way, I'm running for president. Um, <laughs> and you know, and then the fact that he got a lot of press attention once people started to discover who he was, this long shot, pretty cool story of, of something really unique that happened in Iowa, other candidates started to catch on that building this media attention and shaping a narrative moving forward was something that would be advantageous to your campaign. And then that put all the pr- all the pressure, all the eyes on Iowa, uh, because they basically, you know, the candidates knew that was where you shape the narrative. Um, so I guess that's why uh, New Hampshire let Iowa get away with it, because it didn't matter at first. <laughs> right. So before we go here, let's talk about this race as it moves forward. Uh, New Hampshire is next. It is, it is in less than a week. Uh, there will also be a debate in between the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. Kelly, what are your thoughts on 
who is likely to do well in New Hampshire and how these results from Iowa might transition into New Hampshire. So according to recent 538 polling um, that we've we've talked about before, Sanders has a really good lead in New Hampshire. It used to be dominated by Elizabeth Warren, but she fell off recently. And you've seen her support really shift or her supporters really shift to Bernie Sanders instead. It is also noticeable, notable, too, that um, I came across this statistic today that in 2016, Bernie received actually 61% of the votes versus Hillary Clinton. So that's translates to 15 out of the 24 delegates, which I thought was really interesting. And history just shows that Bernie Sanders is strong within New Hampshire. However, in second place in New Hampshire, Joe Biden has 17%. Which is which will be interesting to see though if that number shifts at all regarding of how poorly he did within um, Iowa, and of course it'll be interesting to see too after the final delegates and votes are in um, how Biden performs overall after we have all the data in, but you'll definitely see probably Pete Buttigieg do okay in New Hampshire, not too great, not too poorly, um, but Joe Biden will definitely be the one to watch to see if he drops down anymore. Well, and I think if you are Buttigieg, you're hoping that your performance in Iowa raises your prospects in New Hampshire and probably does so primarily to the detriment of Joe Biden if this bandwagoning effect starts to make people think Biden is actually as weak as he appears to be. And Buttigieg, if you are looking for the, the more moderate candidate, uh, the candidate who is not fighting to be the most progressive one, Buttigieg is your your option there. So I think that's where we'll leave it today. I think the one thing that is also on my mind as we close out here is all of this mess sort of makes me think about Bloomberg waiting in the wings. His strategy is to spend a bunch of money across Super Tuesday states and take advantage of a muddled field and present himself as an alternative to basically all the candidates that are currently on stage. Um, you know, Biden faltering, I think, opens the door for that, particularly when you stand up Bloomberg's centrism against Sanders progressivism. Um, and if if people feel like the only place they have to go that's viable is Bloomberg, that obviously strengthens his case. I still think it's a relative long shot for him. It's a very risky strategy to have waited so long to jump in. Uh, but I think if you are Bloomberg watching those results come in on Monday night, you have to feel at least a little better about your chances, uh, given that the party has is certainly not uniting around one standard bearer that would that would basically block Bloomberg out. Um, so there's going to be a lot to see there. Uh, we'll keep an eye on this as it develops. Uh, but for now, we are going to leave that conversation there. So Kelly, thank you for joining the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. And Megan, thank you as always. Thank you so much, Kyle. All righty, team. We'll talk to you all again soon. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.